So last week, we read through Genesis chapters 29 and 30, and we learned about the deceit of Laban, right? Remember, he deceives him into marrying the other daughter. We read about the desperation of Jacob's two wives and how both of them were very desperate to bring forth children, and they resorted to their own techniques and their own methods. Um, These are the two daughters of Laban, by the way. And we highlighted that Jacob seems to trust in the sovereignty of God, and we challenged ourselves to walk in that sovereignty. Today we're going to move a little bit further in that same story of Laban and Jacob. So we're going to be starting at Genesis chapter 31, verse 1. If you'd like to begin turning with me there. Genesis chapter 31 is found on page 32 of the Pew Bible. And before I get us into the reading, I just want to bring us backwards a little bit to highlight last week. So, you know, Jacob was obedient. He had listened to his mother and father to go to the land where they were from, back to Laban's family, which is his mother's family, to go there and to get a wife. Ultimately because Isaac and Rebekah had told Jacob that they did not want him to marry a woman from the land, the land of Canaan. We see Esau, on the other hand, he goes and marries a bunch of women from the land, being further disrespectful to his parents. Then we know Jacob gets to this land. Well, first he notices this beautiful woman coming to him at the well. And we had noted that a part of walking in the sovereignty of God is to take notice of beauty. So he notices this beauty, and then he goes, he follows them back to the land uh, where their father is, Laban, and he says, I'm willing to work for your daughter. He's willing to work for beauty. To experience beauty in his life, he is willing to work. Another thing we noted last week as a part of the walking in the sovereignty of God. So he seeks after working for this beauty. And then after being deceived, he's even to work doubly as hard. I will work 14 years for the woman that I love, that I desire. And then he goes on to work another four years for the livestock. And then there he was deceived through that, which turns out to ultimately bless Jacob. So for me, again, hopefully you all caught that point last week, that if we want to experience the blessings of Jacob, we have to walk in the sovereignty of God. We have to trust in the sovereignty of God. We're going to carry that a bit further this week. So here we are at Genesis chapter 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that our father has and all that has belonged to him. Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as it was formerly. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field. And he said to them, I see your father's attitude. It is not friendly to me as it used to be, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. If he spoke this, the speckled shall be your wages. Then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke this, the striped shall be your wages. Then all the flock brought forth striped. Thus God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. And it came about at the time when the flock were mating, that I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream, and behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. Then the angel of the Lord said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. 
He said, lift up your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled. And I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. Rachel and Leah said to him, Do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has also consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. So Jacob arose, put his children and his wives upon the camels, and he drove away all of his livestock and all of his property which he had gathered, his acquired livestock which he had gathered in Paddan Aram to go to the land of Canaan with his father, to his father. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill of the country of Gilead. I want to continue reading here. I want to take you through the full reading. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued Jacob a distance of seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob, either good or bad. Laban caught up with Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me, and did not tell me so that I might send you away with joy and with songs, with timbrel and with lyre, with songs, and did not allow me to kiss my sons and daughters? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. Now you have indeed gone your way, because you greatly longed for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob replied to Laban, Because I was afraid. I thought that you would take your daughters away from me by force. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. Rachel did not know, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the idol. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two maids, but he did not find the idols. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle as she sat upon them. And Laban felt, though he felt through all the tent, but he did not find them. She said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found? Set it here before me and my kinsmen, that they may decide between us. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was by day and night consumed by the frost of the night, and sleep fled from my eyes. 
These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your daughters, six years for your flock, and changed my, you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been before me, surely now you would have, been, you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. Laban replied to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children. The flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have now born? So now, come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to the kinsmen, Gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by that heap. Now Laban called it Jagar Sadadutha, but Jacob called it Galib. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me. Therefore it will be named Galib and Mitzpah. For he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is a witness between you and me. Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold the pillar which I have set before you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass by this heap to harm you, and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to harm me. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain, called his kinsmen to the meal. They ate the meal, spent the night on the mountain, and then Laban woke up early in the morning, kissed his sons and daughters, blessed them, and then departed to his place. So a long story. What I want to highlight in this story is unusual circumstances. There's a lot of unusual circumstances going on within this story. You have Laban's treatment to Jacob, rather unusual. This man served you, he's done, he's labored intensely in your land to which ultimately blessed Laban. And unfortunately, Jacob ends up blessed, which is an unusual circumstance because this man was trying to deceive him. And, uh, and unfortunately, Laban's attitude is just rather unusual. The women, they all trust in their own, lean upon their own devices to try to bring forth children. Again, very unusual. Rachel's desire to steal her father's household god as she's leaving with her husband. It was in that culture, when you married, you would take on your husband's gods. So it's unusual that she would decide to steal from her father and bring that God with her. Again, there's a lot that could go into the household gods. In the ancient culture, they believed that these household gods were very important because, as we've talked about, the living and the dead were very important. So the living, if they did not bless their dead, if they did not care for their dead and do the proper things that they understood, they believed their lives would be affected. If we do not do the proper you know, prayers to, the, to our ancestors, now I'm not saying this is correct, but this is what they believed. If we do not do the prayers to our ancestors and we do not do all the sacrificial rites the appropriate way on behalf of you know, our ancestors, which these idols represent, our lives are going to be disturbed. And then vice versa. If, we do not, um, if, you know, if the dead ones do not walk in the fullness of blessing those that would come after them, they would be affected. They believe they would be affected in the afterlife experience and the resurrection of the dead. So, it's you know again we see this even mixed in with the Jewish understanding that the living and the dead were very important. They were very important to these people. So the household god represented their dead ones. Their you know these pagan um, customs represented their ancestors. 
So Laban, you would imagine, this is a very big deal to him. That's why he chases after these people. Um, I'm sorry, chases after Jacob and uh, his daughters. Laban is given a vision. That's another unusual thing. He's a pagan. He's not, a, he's not of the, the, the tribe of, you know, the people of Abraham. He's, well, he is, but he's before Abraham was sent out to go to the land. And he's given this vision, and God says to him, be careful not to say anything good or bad. In other words, this is out of your hands. That's an unusual circumstance, right? We, anybody ever find yourself in those positions? We find yourself in a situation that is out of your hands? That's what he says to him. He says, do not go, don't determine, Laban, that you're going to handle this yourself. Don't do it. It's not up to you. It's in my hands. I have been watching. God is ultimately telling Laban, I'm in charge here. Don't go and don't try to take revenge. Don't go bless him. Don't do anything. It's in my hands now. Again, an unusual circumstance. And then he goes, and obviously he cannot find the the gods, which, again, another unusual circumstance. He searched through all their stuff, and imagine how Laban felt. Pretty foolish. Like, man, I chased after them, probably knowing it's there. I know that the household god is here, but unfortunately he cannot find it. He finds himself in an unusual circumstance. Anybody in the room ever have a feeling of being deceived? Maybe it's a situation in your life that you feel deceived by. Maybe it's the government you feel deceived by. Maybe it's a... uh, a person that you feel deceived by. I imagine everybody in this room would say, I've found myself in an unusual circumstance at some point in my life. I know many people who feel like that in our culture. Maybe an unusual circumstance is evident. Maybe it's a person that has, you know, made them feel, you know, in an unusual situation. They don't know what to do. They don't know the right thing to do. That's what we're going to qualify as an unusual circumstance, is when you don't know what to do. You don't know the right thing. I don't know, should I trust this person? Should I not? Should I trust the government? Should I not? Should I trust the situation is going to work to my benefit? Is it not? Right? We all have those moments. So that's what I see happening right here in this text. A whole bunch of people. Laban doesn't know what to do. Jacob seems to know what to do. The wives don't really know what to do, but there just seems to be a lot of confusion. It seems to be, again, to highlight that phrase there, an unusual circumstance. And the reason I had actually highlighted that, to give you a little background, was that what you're seeing here happen with Laban, this whole uh, agreement that, they, uh, that you're not going to harm my daughters and you're not going to marry other daughters besides my daughters. That wasn't the most popular way of doing marriage customs in that culture. However, there seems to be something strange being done here. John Walton, in his commentary, he says, there appears that a marriage contact, contract was typically drawn up when there were unusual circumstances that called for a document to protect the rights of the groom, as well as the legal status of the wife and the property rights of the children. Because again, you had a lot of deception going on here. Laban is notorious for deceiving people. So, you know, their grand, your grandfather to the children, his, great, his grandchildren, your grandfather is known for taking away blessings. Again, he took them away from Jacob. He sold all his daughters. Another interesting thing I had learned was that when the father would receive that, you know, that uh, payment from the suitor that is trying to marry his daughter. Some of that payment would go to his daughters when they, for a sort of insurance, you know, that you will be blessed. Let's say the husband dies or they're widowed. Some of that dowry, so to speak, would be used to uh, help these daughters in that type of a situation if some unusual circumstances might arise. Laban has lost everything to Jacob. So now it all belongs to Jacob. So it's, that's why his daughters have this animosity to him why has our, daughter, our father treated us as a foreigner? He sold us off with nothing. 
just like a foreigner would be sold. A foreign slave would be sold in such a manner that they would be sold to the person and nothing would be given to the slave. It would all be given to the person that was receiving the slave. And that's how Laban sells his daughters to Jacob. No insurance. So you see there's a lot of frustration here. And for me, it highlighted the unusual circumstance. There seems to be an unusual circumstance in this text. Personally, when I consider the political and theological climate in America, I describe that as an unusual circumstance. I sometimes don't know what to say. I imagine Laban felt like that when he arrived and felt like he was wrong. You know, can't find the household gods. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I imagine Jacob felt like that at many times. I don't know what the right thing to do is in this situation. I didn't steal your gods. You've searched all my stuff. I, I don't know how to further prove to you that I don't have your gods. Again, I don't know what to do. However, I desire to be consistent in my walk, especially as we endeavor to live out and put on display the image of God. That's what we're called to do. Right? I, I said that intentionally this morning as I came up here, that we are called to bring light into this world. So in my walk, I, if I find myself at a place where I don't know what to say and I don't know what to do, it becomes quite frustrating. And I imagine many of you would share with me, because again, we're trying to be a light to a dark world. And if, I, if me, the light, right, well, us, the light, that's more right, um, us, the light, if I'm going out there and I don't know the right things to say or to do to a world that is in desperate need of some answers, again, we could take that admonition from Peter, right, to always have an answer for those who ask for your hope. So if I don't have an answer or if I don't know really what to say, it becomes frustrating to me, especially as I desire to live out the image of Christ, the presence of our Lord and the fruits of the Spirit. Again, it's hard when, when we're seeing such contention in our world. When you find yourself in a confusing place, I want to make sure I'm always displaying the fruits of the Spirit. But then I know, I'm sure I could, many of you would share that experience with me, that sometimes when we find ourselves in unusual circumstances, the fruits of the Spirit aren't always the things that we're prone to do. Right? We, we seem to go a different direction. We seem to be like the desperate housewives of Jacob and lean upon our own understandings. It's important to consider how we react to certain, certain circumstances. Because let's face it, when we find ourselves in unusual circumstances, we are prone to act in unusual ways. Some might say ways that are not in accordance with our character. In so many ways, we need to make a covenant with God, a covenant with others, or even with ourselves, like Jacob and Laban did, to provide ourselves with accountability and consistency. And I believe that's one of the major things, that when we find ourselves in unusual circumstances, we need to challenge ourselves. Am I being accountable? Am I being consistent? Am I acting in accordance with you know, the way that I want my, with my character? Or am I, unfortunately, allowing this unusual circumstance to make me act in unusual ways? In an effort to glean some insight on how we might do that, because I do believe I'm speaking to all of us in this. I believe that all of us, are, if we're not there now, if we haven't been there in times past, we will be there. We will be in a place where we say, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, and God help me. So then what do we do? What are some markers we can put, we can set up in our lives that would keep us from acting in quote-unquote unusual ways? So here, let's go to verse 48. Verse 48, it says, Laban said, right here, they're, you know, they're having this moment. They, well, first off, they said, let's make a covenant. That's going to be my answer to you, is that when you find yourself in an unusual circumstance, make a covenant. Make a covenant with God. 
make a covenant with, maybe it's a person, maybe you have an unusual circumstance with another person. You don't trust them. They don't trust you. Make a covenant. Make an agreement. And you're going to see here, they make an agreement that we can kind of mold, we can mold this in our lives. We can say that if I find myself in a situation where I don't know the right thing to say, I don't know the right thing to do, I can make a covenant on how I'm going to act with accountability and consistency. If I find myself in a relationship where I don't know, you know what to say or what to do, we can make a covenant to make sure we act in the you know, appropriate, accountable, and appropriate manner. And even maybe sometimes it's with God. Maybe you feel that you, know, you, you have some sort of deception in your relationship with God. You find yourself in an unusual circumstance where you don't trust his grace. You don't trust his mercy. You don't trust his forgiveness. You don't trust his love. Whatever it might be. When we find ourselves in these situations, we can say, let's make a covenant. So I'm going to show you how to do that here. Verse 48. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. And it was called Galid and Mitzpah. So Galid means a heap of stones. There's nothing really all that great there. You know, we see this throughout the whole Old Testament that when they wanted to make a marker, which that's what Galid highlighted for me, was the necessity to make a marker, to set up a mound of rocks, a heap of rocks. So then the next word, mitzpah, mitzpah means a watchtower or a lookout, something that is going to look and to see. And then what they say here in this text is they say, may God be the witness. And if you look on the front of your bulletin this morning, I've given you a, many of you may remember the, the, the best friend hearts, right? You ever seen those best friend hearts that they're like a necklace that you could wear and it could come apart and your best friend could wear the other portion? Well, that's what this is supposed to be here on your front of your bulletin. It's a mitzvah. So when you break it apart, the one person would wear the Lord between me while we won FR, right? And then it would break apart and it would just ultimately fill that verse there in Genesis where it says, the Lord watch between me and thee while we are absent from one another. And that's a beautiful thing to wear there. However, John Walton points out, I'm going to share some notes, um, it is not unusual today to hear this intoned by a minister as the benediction to the congregation at the end of a service or to find it inscribed on wedding rings. It's in In using it in this way, we show our misunderstanding of the words. Here in Genesis, they express suspicion. This is not a loving thing. This is not, may God watch between me and you and we can just leave here pleasantly. This is, I don't trust you. I don't, that's what he's saying to him. I don't trust you. And I don't trust that I'm going to be able to watch you. So what I'm going to ask God to do, we're going to set up God as our witness right now. You see, it's not this loving, here, take this part of the necklace and, and go on. It's, no, I'm accusing you. I don't trust you. I don't believe you. Again, as you see, I'm, I'm pointing out there's maybe situations, maybe people that you know that you can identify in that way. You say, yeah, I know some people. I know some situations I don't trust. I know some people I don't trust. And for me, I, I find myself in some places like that. And I say, what do I do in those situations? How can I act appropriately and act in a God-glorifying way? So John Walton points out that this is, this is not the right way to use these phrases. He says, uh, many people... Here in Genesis, they express suspicion. Laban does not trust Jacob, and Jacob does not trust Laban. They both regret that they will have no means to keep an eye on one another and to prevent each other from mischief-making. So they commend one another to the watchful eye of the deity. A paraphrase is, I don't trust you out of my sight, but since I can no longer personally hold you accountable, may God do so. It is hardly a sentiment that one would want on a wedding ring. It's important to note, you know, it's... 
That's not exactly the right way to go about doing this. And although a minister may feel that way about a congregation, you know, God's watching you, um, probably not the right, right way to go about encouraging the saints to live in the presence of God. So how do we do this? How do I live with God as my witness? That's a good question to ask ourselves, right? How do I live? If God, let's set that mitzvah up right now. How do we live in our lives if we say God is always watching? I know we use that in Christianity. We say that. Sometimes I wonder if we really believe it. Do we really believe God is always watching? Always, at every moment. And how should that challenge us to live our lives? If God is always watching. Coram Deo is a Latin phrase meaning before the face of God. And it encapsulates this teaching. It encapsulates the biblical teaching that we are to live reverentially aware of the Lord's ever-present eye upon us. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, we read, Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That seems to be a good passage there to point out that no matter what, no matter what you're doing, wherever you find yourself, whatever you're doing in your life, whatever position you're in, whatever circumstance you're facing, do whatever you are doing for the glory of God, the exaltation of God. Living before his face means we respect God's holiness and strive to please him in all things, give him glory for everything. I found it interesting, that phrase there, God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. So that was interesting. I didn't, I didn't notice that before. You see that in verses 42 and 53. So the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, this should bring about a reverence and a trust. Right? That's when I think about that, the God of Abraham, a God of blessings, a God that always comes through with his word, a faithful God. So I should trust that God. That's the one thing. I know if that God is always watching and always with me, I should trust him. And then I should revere him. I should have a healthy fear for who he is. Jacob seemed to have a reverence and a trust in God. He knew that if I do the right thing, I walk the right way. Even in the midst of being deceived, again, put your, you know, I always want to go back to that story. To imagine Jacob, constantly deceived, deceived by Laban, three times over, changed his wages ten times. And yet he still just kept going. He said, I'm, you know, I'm not going to leave. He could have just ran away at first. So you know what, this guy, why didn't Jacob, when he got his two wives, he had all his children, why didn't he just leave? But instead, he went to Laban, and remember, Laban begs him, stay with us. The presence of God is with you. You've been blessing my land. Please stay. And Jacob stays. For me, I look at that story, and I say, Jacob obviously trusted in the sovereignty of God. He knew, even if I stay here, and this makes absolutely no sense, because this man is a deceiver, why is he going to give me his, his uh, livestock? He, I had a problem with him giving me his daughter that I worked for. So why am I going to stay here and trust that he's going to give me livestock? So I sit there and I wonder that story and I say, you know, me, and unfortunately the carnal me, I was gone. I wasn't staying there and trusting in the sovereignty of God. But see, Jacob did something interesting. He did the next right thing. Actually, I heard somebody preach on that recently. I'm trying to remember who it was. To always do the next right thing. And that's what Jacob did. Jacob didn't flee. He didn't leave the land. He didn't say, it's time to, you know, this guy is a deceiver. I'm out of here. He said, I'm going to do the next right thing. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to trust in the sovereignty of God. So again, my point is is that Jacob had that reverence and that trust for God. And that's why he was able to say, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. I'm going to live in that. I'm going to live with that reality. 
And I know we all know in this room that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. I want to take you to a couple other passages. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 14. And you'll also see these on the back of your bulletin, by the way. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 14 reads, How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. There you go. He who fears the Lord always will be blessed. That's what I want to do. I want to walk in that fear of the Lord. In Matthew chapter 10, we know Jesus said, Do not fear those who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And then, of course, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So yes, I have a fear for God, but the love that I have for God far exceeds that fear. The grace that God has bestowed upon the believers outweighs the judgment and the criticism and you know that attitude of, I better make sure I do everything right to please God. No, I love God and I please him therefore because I love him. So the first thing we must do, if we want to make a covenant and we want to say, how can I respond in godly ways to unusual circumstances? The first thing is recognize God is with us. Fear God. Know his presence is all around you. Take recognition of that. Whether it's you making an agreement in a situation saying God is there and I'm not going to allow this situation to confound or confuse or to depress me. Or if it's a person, you say, I'm going to allow God to serve as the witness between us. And then the second thing we have to do, the second thing they did here in this passage, is they said, I will set up this heap so that you will not come to my side and I will not go toward your side to harm you. And Romans chapter 12, verse 18 challenges us to be as peaceful as we can be, to as much as lieth within you with all men. So the two things that we should do in any unusual circumstance is know that God is present, trust in his presence, and endeavor not to be as peaceful as to endeavor to be as peaceful as we can be. Those are our two things. So no matter what situation you find yourself in, if I find myself in, I'm not trusting, you know, I'm going to use the government because this week it's a kind of common thing. Um, you know, if I find myself in an unusual circumstance, not trusting in the efficacy of the government, I would say, well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to know God is here. God is present. God is watching. God is a witness. And I'm not a deist, so I believe God is very active in this world. And the second thing is, is I'm going to go about living my life in the most peaceful way I can, not endeavoring to do harm to anyone. And I mean that ideologically, I mean that politically, I mean that in my actions, I mean that every way possible, I'm going to be the most peaceful person I can. And that brings me to my conclusion this morning. As I mentioned last week, or rather have continued to mention, Genesis is properly understood as the beginning, the beginnings of God's covenant people. I imagine the ancient world, the ancients in the faith, would have returned to these stories in Genesis and used them as inspiration to live consistently knowing that God was with them. And in such a manner, I believe it is right and healthy for us to do so. So I've been having a great ongoing conversation with another minister, and I'm going to leave you with this. 
him and I have marked out a, a few differences that we have in our theology. I, I would say that in our conversations, I find myself in some unusual circumstances in this conversation with this other minister. Yet the conversation has been such a blessing. You want to know why? Because I believe that the covenant that we just discussed this morning, I believe that when I endeavored to have this conversation with this other minister, knowing we had differences, I made a covenant. And I said, God is here. I'm not going to let this conversation frustrate me. I'm not going to worry about where the conversation might go or if he's going to corner me on my Calvinistic teachings. I'm going to let God be present. I'm going to trust in the presence of God. God is a witness between me and him. God knows my heart. God knows if he's seeking after truth. And then the second thing is, is I'm not going to speak in him a way, to him in a way or I'm not going to interact with him in a way that he would think is harmful or that hurts him or that bothers him. And I believe setting up that covenant actually allowed our relationship, even though it's a bit unusual because he's Church of Christ and I'm a pretty much a Calvinist and you know that's a strange relationship if you do the historical study. And uh, in this unusual circumstance, I was able to say, you know what, let me make a covenant. Let me establish things rightly. And I believe that if we do that in all aspects of our life, if we look at any type of unusual circumstance and we set those two things up, that we will find blessings, that we will live in the sovereignty of God. We don't actually have to build heaps, but I believe it's rightly noted that Jesus Christ is our heap and our pillar. Amen? If you set your eyes on him, the author and finisher of your faith, he becomes the, the rocks that you would build up to remind yourself of the need to be accountable and the need to live consistently. That brother blessed me this week with a certain thought. And this sermon allows me the privilege to share it with all of you. Those who persecuted the church, as per 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, were called wicked and unreasonable. They were wicked and unreasonable men. Therefore, as his church, we endeavor to be righteous and reasonable. Amen? Not wicked and unreasonable, righteous and reasonable. May God hold us accountable to that. May God be our witness that we will move forward as a people that are righteous and reasonable. And in closing, I just want to take us to Romans 12, and I want to read through chapter 12 and send you out with that message. Romans 12 ultimately highlights how we can live this reality of God always being present and our um, being at peace with all men. Therefore, brethren, I urge you, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, and, what, and that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think more highly of yourself than you should, but to think as though sound judgment, and as God has given to each of us a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service, in his serving, he who teaches, in his teaching, he who exhorts, in his exhortation, he who gives, with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let your love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit instead, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in your minds, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Saints, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the example of Scripture, Lord, where we can come to a text and we can glean the same wisdom the ancients of the faith would when they would look back to these beginnings and say, how can we be a consistent, obedient, and accountable people? How can we truly display the wisdom of the Lord in situations that we are confounded by? Lord, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for the spirit that illuminates your truth, Lord. And as we leave here, may we endeavor to be a people of peace. May we know that you are always with us, always watching, Lord. And not always seeing that as a suspicious look, Lord, but that you are with us to bless us as you were with Jacob. Remind us of that reality as we leave here, Lord. And also remind us of the call to be a peaceable people, to represent you, to be a light in the midst of darkness, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. At this time, I'd like to invite our ushers to come forward and we will collect our missionary offering.